Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Hey, good evening. Good to be back with you guys again after traveling all over the place. Nice to be off the road and back in here. Who taught last week in here? We're trying to figure that out. Anybody remember who it was? Oh, yeah, Chad? Oh, Chad's fantastic. He's way better. I'd like to hear Chad teach as much as I can. Um, Hopefully I've got the right text because I didn't call Chad or Scott before I prepared today, which is always awesome. Um, So if it's the wrong text, just uh, smile and nod and just endure. Um, Glad to be back, though, honestly. And uh, I'll just say this. Uh, today for me is a, is a very special day. Uh, this is my one year anniversary from when I was uh, being absolutely completely stupid. And right about now, what time is it? 6.30? Yeah, about now I'd have been, is the sun starting to set? That tells me the most. I'd have been flying in a helicopter on a backboard on my way to the hospital. So this is a, this is a good day. So if you don't know the short story is uh, being stupid, Trying to have fun, doing things I should not have been doing, riding a mountain bike, wrecked, bad, broke two vertebrae on my neck, and that was a year ago today. So I'm glad to be with you guys and not in the hospital right now. So, and, uh, and trust me, I say way better things right now than I do when I'm on morphine. So that's, uh, that's good. Let's just say that Jesus is still fixing me and redeeming all aspects, all aspects of my life. So you just take that for what it is. Uh, but I know Mark Christian laughed pretty hard a couple of times. Uh, I'm just glad to be with you guys, glad to be going through this text. I uh, really don't like this text today because, like many of you, uh, I can find times in my life when I like to act like I don't struggle with it, and I do. Uh, I'd like to act like it's never an issue in my life, uh, but if I get in the right situation, then, man, I can struggle with it. And we're going to be landing in, uh, in James chapter 2, but let's just do this. Uh, let's go through, and I want you to think of... A label that somebody can call you that you honestly just don't mind. Okay, let's just start with that. A label that can be used against you that if they were to call you that. And listen, I'm going to just take Christian out of the equation. Okay, nobody gets the easy Jesus answer here. All right, so you can't say Christian Christ follower, nothing of the religious component right now. Okay, have a little bit of fun. All right, if somebody would label you, I'll start off. You can call me a Chiefs fan all day long and I will not be offended. You can label me that. All right, so go ahead at your tables. Just talk for a bit. If somebody to give you a label that you wouldn't mind, what is it? Go. Just get to know each other a bit. There we go. See that shirt? Chiefs fan shirt. The difference in those two words. I know. <laughs> Which ones? I was, was, I was trying to the nice one. That's funny. All right. Here we go. A, uh, now, don't get too personal. I'm not looking for one that's like going to tap into the deep, dark recesses of your heart and make you like come out fighting mad. All right. Call it a label. Call it a nickname. Whatever it is, a label put on you that sometime in your past would have ticked you off, okay? So and have fun with it. Don't make it like, 
you know, something that's got to do with, I don't know, anything from your intellect to your physical appearance to whatever it is. Pick something that, you know, that you can have fun with, all right? I'm not, not trying to cause problems here, all right? Something you could have been called a label, could have been put on you that, man, somebody calls you that, those fight words, okay? For me, Broncos fan, those fight words. Absolute fight words. Come here, Broncos fan, we might go to blows. Just got to say, are there Broncos fans in here? Okay, a Broncos fan? Okay, we... We need to present the gospel right now in this room immediately, right this way. Okay. All right, go ahead. Label you can have fun with. Somebody could call you that you would have said, uh, I might fight you now. Uh, just being honorary, being fun. Okay, go. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, last thing we'll do with labels. Last thing we'll do. Uh, we're going to go at your table until someone can't answer. You give each other about three seconds to give an answer. If somebody can't answer three seconds, they're out. Just going to play a little game. Just try to have a little bit of fun, wake you guys up. Um, here's what you do. Everyone starts by going around the table, giving your first name. And then after that, you have to give a label that describes you. Okay? And nobody, okay, Nobody else at that table can use the same one once you've used it, okay? So you may say mom, dad, brother, sister, aunt, uncle. You may go through doctor, you know, whatever it is, factory worker, whatever it is, whatever it is, okay? Many labels that describe you as possible, okay? You're going to start with the youngest person at the table. So their first label is I'm the youngest, okay? Who is it? Let's get that figured out. Youngest at your table starts. You go... Until somebody, until you got one, one last person standing, okay? Many as you can think of. Three second delay, you're out. Honor system, ready, go. Just one word. One word. One word, three, no more than three seconds. <laughs> All right, any tables done yet? Anybody done? You still going? Man, it's impressive. Out. <laughs> All right, here we go. We'll wrap this up. Part of the reason why I do this is I love the fact that we go to, I love this church. I've been here my whole life, but also it's, it's easy to get into a large church and not have a chance to get to know each other. So we will do this every week just to just to see, you can meet people just a little bit, get to know each other's stories a tiny bit. And uh, uh, for me, it, that's usually humor. Uh, as a guy, uh, I at times don't always like to jump off the deep end and start telling my darkest, you know, regrets and everything else. So we'll always have a little bit of fun in here uh, as we get going. Uh, but we're going to dive into this text tonight. It's fresh on me a bit because of where it just came from. So last week, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get my bearings right now on what day it is. 
Uh, last week, this is Wednesday, so I guess, yeah, I was spending my last night. No, I was flying home. That's what it was. Flying home from the Republic of Ireland. And we had an opportunity to, I don't know if you guys know much, or for some of you guys, if you're younger, you may not remember all this, uh, but if you understood, I grew up in the 80s, and what was going on during that time between the Republic of Ireland and Ireland was absolutely insane. Um, you know, and I think I've mentioned in here, or at another time we were teaching in this class, is that I hear, you know, you two songs a little differently than the younger generation. Because for me, when I grew up, is I remember watching, you know, all the machine guns going off in Belfast and the petrol bombs. And, and that was just what we watched on the nightly news. It was just this constant gunfire in Belfast. Some of you guys can remember that. I mean, you know, we, you, know you, you, can, you can go back and say, yeah, I remember what was going on with the, you know, the UDF and the, the IRA and all of the tension that took place, you know, within Protestants and Catholics. And we start talking about labels and, and identifying people. It's pretty intense. And so even today, if you go to the, go to the, you know, the, go to Ireland, uh, you know, it may be one island, but on Ireland, it is two nations. And it's interesting. As you're driving, you know, you'll land in Dublin, which is Republic of Ireland, and the roads will say kilometers, all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, it's not even official. It is an official border. My bad. Uh, but you can't tell really when you cross the border. But as soon as you do, immediately switches over to miles. One side uses euros and is a part of the European Union. The other side is a part of the UK and part of, you know, you know, Britain and all of that, you know, those British Isles, and they use the pound in, for their, uh, their, you know, their, their money. And, and so it's just, it's just interesting as you watch. And as you go into, you know, you know, Northern Ireland specifically, you can still feel the tension. It's come a long way. It's grown a lot. But in terms of partiality and favoritism and anger and animosity, um, it really comes up as racism dressed in the guise of religion is what it is. And that the tension isn't so much between a Protestant and a Catholic as much as it is which neighborhood were you born in. And, you know, people who look just like one another can all of a sudden differentiate in so many different ways. I mean, it takes me one single question to know if a kid is Protestant or Catholic. One question. Anyone want to guess what that question is? Besides, what religion are you? Where are you from? That might do it. But there's actually one that gets to it even quicker because sometimes they'll be embedded in the same neighborhoods. I can easily ask a kid, I, I can ask it a few different ways, but I say something as simple as, do you play Gaelic? Wham, right then I know. Of a kid's like, no, 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 no. Gaelic, it's, a, it's an Irish uh, Catholic sport. And so, you know, it's kind of like if you put together soccer, rugby, and football. Very violent sport, a lot of fun to watch. Then all of a sudden, you know, as you, as you drive by the schools, you can see the schools that are Catholic schools and you can see the schools that are Protestant schools based on the sports they play, based on the sports equipment that's in the field. Because you're a Protestant kid, you'll never play Gaelic your whole life. You wouldn't be caught dead on a Gaelic field. If you're, you know, if you are a Gaelic kid, you know, you're not going to play Protestant sports. You're not going to get involved in that. The one crossover would be football. And I don't mean American football. I mean soccer. That's the only crossover that you might get. And so in this moment, there's this tremendous animosity. You know, you walk into Northern Ireland and, you know, the Union Jack is flying everywhere. And all of a sudden you show up with a tricolor, which is the Irish flag. And there are neighborhoods, even in Belfast, where that tricolor, you know, the Irish flag still flies. And man, it is the equivalent of just flipping the bird, you know, and it is absolutely intense, huge problems. And, you know, you walk by this massive wall that is probably uh, three times higher than the ceiling where we're standing right now. And that wall is huge, what they call the peace wall. You know, it's interesting they call it a peace wall. 
<laughs> the only reason that wall is there is to keep the Protestants and, and the Catholics from throwing petrol bombs at one another over the top. You know, and, and you're, so you're talking just the tension that resides in that country. And I thought that when I went down last week and I spent all my time in the Republic, I thought, well, they won't really care. But then I found just, it's just a different type of racism. You know, they look at the North and then you're like, well, they're one island. Man, they, they would still look at the North like, yeah, we don't mess with those people. We don't really care about them. But they've got a whole nother issue down in there that all of a sudden I bring into this room for, for these meetings. And there are Catholic leaders and Protestant leaders who would never even talk to one another. In fact, for some of them, this is some of their first exchanges. And for them to start sharing ideas about youth ministry and about students and working with students. And I guess I would say is that it doesn't matter where you go, whether you're on a small island or you're right here in our area, we can find areas to divide. And the church dealt, dealt with this very early on. We're going to get into it tonight. Let, let's just be honest, even in our own community. And I want to have a little bit of fun, but let's be a little bit honest. What are some of the things that can divide in the 417 area code, what are some things we can say that, that causes division at times? Football. Yeah, that's great. Football does. No, that's great. You're, that's a great. That's a great answer. Sports, not just football, but sports. You know, because it, it's football here. But if you want to go over to my son was wrestling, and all of a sudden you get divides between between squads, and you know this squad looks down on this one because they're not as good. All that kind of stuff. So sports is a great example. What else? Politics. Politics. Absolutely. Oh, man. And that goes beyond 417. But yeah, even here, even here. And that happens at a local level. I mean, you look at and I'm not not picking at it, but I I can't help but read the news. You watch some of the things that that even Joplin has endured over the last four or five years in the area of politics has been intense. You know, just the issues they've dealt with from from all aspects, from city government to all of that. That's nothing. I'm trying to take a shot at Joplin. It's just been on the news. It's reported on a regular basis. Um, what else? Politics. It's a great one. Another, it's another point we find division. Economics. Economics. It's true. That there are, and you could break that down a lot of different ways. You could say in a city, you've got uh, sometimes those that, that have and those that have not. And then at times, I would even say, because I, I mean, I feel like I, I don't feel like I did grow up here, so I feel like I can say this with a little bit of authority. Uh, and a little bit of, of, of reality. I think that even the way we view some cities in this area, we look down in some towns because they're not as nice or as good as other towns, you know, and, and or county. That's interesting. That's a great point. Yeah, the way we would view a Mac County because it's the one that always gets dug on, the one that's made. Of, even here, you hear that, that, that chuckle in here. Or, you know, the, the towns around here like, oh, next city, Alba, Orinoco. You know what I'm talking about? That there are all kinds of ways that we, we find ways. I think there's some point where it's our natural inclination to find something to look down on. Ethnicity, race. Oh, ethnicity, race. How can we not go there? Great point. Anything else that comes to mind? Parenting. Parenting? Yeah. It's good. Religion. That's fantastic. Yeah. Religion is a great one. Even among Christians, man, the way that we'll view people that go to you know, you can, you can go as micro as those that go to Carterville and those that go to CCO and those that go to College Heights. Three sister churches are all very similar. Or go beyond that and talk about those that go to the Baptist church or the, the Assembly of God church or go to Destiny or whatever it is. Whatever. I'm just picking out names of churches right now. It doesn't really matter. At some point we find ways. We just, it's almost, it's almost like we look for ways to divide. And I watched this thing happening already at my kindergarten son's level. I mean, I watch the separation of friendships. I watch the way they divide among one another. And there's something within us 
that's that natural inclination, that we just struggle with that. And James, very early on, it's just a refresher, half-brother Jesus, he's founding and starting what really is the first church. And if you've ever felt like you've ever walked into church and felt like people were maybe looking down on you, or you've ever caught yourself, if you're going to be completely honest, looking down on somebody else that walked into the church, like, what are they doing here? You know, because immediately some of you guys are thinking you're looking up at people think they're too good to be here. Or maybe you're looking at, dude, who's that crackhead that just walked in? You know what I mean? We, we get these moments where in the church we start, we start doing this stuff. And James dealt with it at the very first church. And in fact, my opinion is I really could make a pretty strong case. Uh, I wouldn't, I'm not going to stake my life on it. That James is the first book written in the Bible. And we get, in my opinion, it is. You get two chapters in, and already we're dealing with a, with, a, with a conversation and a topic we will deal with this, uh, to this very day. So let's jump into the text tonight. Uh, I'm going to have you guys at your tables reading a ton of Scripture together tonight, uh, just because I think it's important, and because I think you guys learn a ton from one another uh, when we do that. So we're going to start off in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to start off, I'm just going to read the text out loud, uh, and then later on I'll have you guys read a lot of it as well. Says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they the, uh, excuse me, are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Well, if you, uh, you you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Finally, interesting, we're going to kind of do this at our tables real quick because there's no doubt uh, that that James had to be influenced so much by his brother Jesus. Um, And like I said, if you're you're new to this, there's only two books in the Bible that are written uh, by brothers of Jesus. We'll say half-brothers. Please give me grace when I say that. I keep trying to clean it up. Know my heart. Half-brothers of Jesus. And that would be James and Jude. Um, and, I, and I love, if you get your Bibles, look at, at Matthew 7, okay? We're going to walk through this. I'm going to have you guys do it at your tables. And then see if you can find, I'm going to give you a couple of things. I want you to, to watch how James will mirror some of his brother's teachings, okay? Matthew chapter 7. I'll turn to myself, hold on. We're going to go through and look at the way that, that, uh, that James echoes some of the very things that his brother taught. So here's what I want you to do. Jesus does this whole discourse on judging others. And man, don't we like to talk about, you know, who are you to judge me? You know, it's one of our favorite things to do. 
you know, uh, you know, what right think you got? We, we love to live in that world. I want to draw some parallels between what, what James will write, what Jesus will write. So I want you, I want you to look at verse one of James chapter two. So hold your hand. You're going to flip back and forth through the text. And I want you to look at verses one and two of James, uh, of, of Matthew seven. Okay. Find me the common denominator. Common denominator in the first verse of James 2, James 2, 1 and Matthew 7, 1. Somebody read those out loud. Somebody, somebody read Matthew out loud. Matthew 7, 1. Go ahead and read that. And then somebody read James 2, 1 out loud. James 2.1, Matthew 7.1. You're just doing a little research right now. What's a common denominator? Talk about it at your tables and let's hear back. Talk about it together. What's a common denominator? You guys got it? Okay. So as we look at what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount time frame, and we look at what James is doing, there's immediately a parallel between these two texts. You're going to see a real cool mirroring thing take place. Okay? So it's basically saying, don't judge. Say, do not judge. All right? Next thing. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 7 again. This time I want somebody to read. Somebody volunteer right now at your table to read verses 3 through 5. 3 through 5. Who's got that? Somebody volunteer. And then somebody read James chapter 2 verses 2 through 4. Who's got that? Somebody call it. All right, go ahead and do those. All right, find the common denominator. Talk about it a bit. Can you see it? What do the two texts have in common? I feel like you're doing ACT prep again, don't you? Who's got it? What's the commonality? First one is do not discriminate. What's the second one? Someone take a stab at it? Because these texts are going to keep mirroring each other. What? Huh? That's a great way of saying it. Yeah, the, that's a great way of... What is it? What is it? The way you look at people? What else? Somebody else got a common denominator? Okay, don't be a hypocrite. So both these are talking about... One's talking about, you know, removing your own faults, like the plank in your eye. One's talking about removing your own partiality. So they're both pointing out that you've got a problem. Okay? Make sense? When I say you, I'm talking about from the text. They're both pointing out that, that the person has a problem. Now I want you to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Okay? Somebody got Matthew 7, 6? Somebody read that one for us? Who's got it? 
Somebody got it at your table? And somebody get James 2, 5 through 7. Somebody call that one. James 2, 5 through 7. James 2, sorry, yeah, 5 through 7. Anybody find the common denominator in that one? Find the link between James and his brother. Anyone want to take a stab at it? So one is telling you not to despise something that's sacred. And the other one's telling you not to despise uh, brothers that are holy or brothers that are rich in faith. So they both have this issue of don't despise things that are sacred or things that are good. Okay? Make sense? Okay, I'm just wanting you to go like, this is interesting. That one of James' very first writing, he goes back to the Sermon on Mount, and he takes one of the things, and I wonder, I wonder, I don't know if James heard this teaching. I don't know where he was with Jesus. I would assume early on he may have been here for this one, and it's probably pretty influential for him. Let's keep going. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Who's got that? Somebody call it. And then somebody called James 8, uh, James 2, 8 through 11. James 2, 8 through 11. Did you find the parallel yet? Are you still reading? Sorry. Rushing you. My bad. All right, what's the, uh, what's the connection? What's the connection you see between those? This is probably the easiest one, so somebody take a stab at it. You want to take a stab at it? Yeah, basically love your neighbors yourself. We can keep going through because, there, and I'm, I'm, we got other stuff we're going to cover tonight. I can't bog down on this one the whole time. There's about three or four more of these that you'll find. If you just basically go all the way down to verse 27 of, of Matthew 7 and then work all the way to verse 26 of this chapter, they just keep working parallel between Matthew 7 and James 2. They just walk right hand in hand all the way through. It's pretty fascinating 
when you look at it, you're like, man, that's, that's amazing. And just the way that he walks, um, even chronologically. Um, so let's get into this. Uh, James is going to deal with, in his entire book, is, if I could use one word, I'll change that one word next week. For today, the one word would be inconsistency. That in chapter one, there's this inconsistency between how we view God, how we view trials, and, and the fact that those at times can lead us even into sin. And today, he's going to deal with this inconsistency between we say that we worship a glorious God, we say that we follow him, Yet we don't treat other humans the way they need to be treated. And James is going to, he's going to come out and really, really just get into it. Um, you know, what James has got is, is this hypocritical religiosity. Because somebody comes in in fancy clothes and they'll pay all kinds of attention. And I think you guys all know enough about the Bible, I'm going to assume. You know that when we wrote the Bible, first of all, it wasn't written in English. Everybody knows that, right? Okay. That the Old Testament, pretty much all, you know, Hebrew, New Testament, pretty much Greek. Okay. Second thing is there were no like chapter markings. Like there were no verse markings. There were no chapter markings. None of that kind of stuff existed. And I feel like the chapter division in James is really unfortunate. It's in the wrong spot, man. And it irritates me. And I can't go back and fix it. I'm not going to change, you know, Hundreds or not thousand years of church history, but but I'll tell you, I don't like I don't like the division. I don't like where they put it because what I really feel like is that if you want to understand James two, in the context of it, you need to go back up to verse of uh, James James one, and I think I think the verses right before that should have been. I think it flows together because right up here, verse twenty six of chapter one, that's where this thought needs to begin. He starts here and he says, if anyone considers himself religious. Yet doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue. He deceives himself and his religion is worthless. So he starts introducing this tension, this inconsistency. First inconsistency has to do a whole lot with, you know, trials and sin and life and, and temptation, all of that. Then he gets into talking about your mouth. And we'll get into that issue a whole lot more later on, this inconsistency. And then he goes on. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And then he goes in, my brothers. He he says, let me illustrate that. And so a lot of times I think in this church what you had was that there was like, good night. Here we are. You guys are trying to act all spiritual. You're paying attention to the rich people. And we get widows and orphans over here that you're not paying any attention to at all. And, And I think what you've got in this moment is James responding to that need. Like, man... You're coming in your fancy clothes or somebody else shows up in their fancy clothes. You know, you're oohing and on over them. You're all impressed with how they look. You're all impressed with their status. You're all impressed with, you know, with how popular or famous they are. Yet the people over here that really need your help, the widow and orphan, you, you ignore them. He's like, how do you call yourself righteous at all? You know, you're hypocrites is what James is doing. And he's just basically come off the top rope. Um, how, how does this work in our culture? How does it work in our culture? I, I'm going to get... Let's start at a, at a 50,000 foot view. Let's start way up here. Way up here. And I'm going to intentionally try to provoke some thought tonight. And, and by no means do I want to say that I'm right on all this. But I'm going to ask you for just a little bit of grace and for you to go, I think he's wrong, but I'll give it a thought. Okay, can we just get that? What I'm going to say right now, I'm, I'm not trying to say is a word from God. I'm not a prophet. i got a prophet's heart. But, but let me start at a safe area, but might actually kind of torque some of you by the end of the night. And, and it's okay. You can walk up and say, I don't like that. And that's all right. I'm good with that. I really am. Like, I'm, if you know my personality, I'm like, I'm honestly okay with that. To walk up and go, 
absolutely disagree with you. I'm, I'm, I think you're wrong. And I'm good with that. Uh, it's, it's good for me to be held in check. Um, I'm going to start with a church view. And, and by church, I don't mean CCO. Okay? I'm talking about universal. Large, large picture, especially the American church. I'm going to sit down so I don't get all wound up. Because um, I'll get to preaching if I don't keep control of my heart on this issue. I think we're missing it right now. Um, we could look at this at a lot of different levels. And we're going to come all the way down to our own personal heart. But let's start at a really high level. What, what happened to us as a church that we got to the point, and I don't mean CCO. You can't hear, every time I say church, you can't hear Cry Church of Ornogo. Think broader. Think bigger. What's happened to the American church that we've gotten to the point that we've allowed our politics to draw us into discussions and battlegrounds that have never been a place for the church to be. Let me take this for example. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 does this amazing parable where he talks about a dragnet. He goes, let's just do it. Let's read this. There's no use in me referencing it if, if, if people aren't familiar. I'm realizing some of you guys are like, oh, I know that parable. Some of you are like, I have no idea. So Jesus goes to this whole prophet, Matthew 13. Jesus goes, I'm standing up. This isn't going to be good. Um, I know my heart. Trying, I'm trying to keep calm on this issue before I just start dropping bombs. And I'm going to fly over like a B-52 here in a second. Uh, Jesus walks through, and if you understand the principle of Matthew, I know we're talking about James. i got to go quick. Matthew is written to point out that, James, that, that Jesus is king. It's a point of Matthew. whole book is written. The dude writes the book to say, Jesus is the king. Chapter 1. He drops, you know, these bombs, but he says, look at his, you know, his pedigree. He comes from the line of David. He deserves to be king. All right? Like, all the way back. Goes all the way back to King David. He's from the family line. He deserves to be king. He goes into chapter 2, and he says, he deserves to be king because, look, look at this. The, the king, the king makers, the magi, they came, and they anointed him as king. All right? Look. Then he goes in, I think it's chapter 3, where he shows, like, John the Baptist shows up. And look, the guy that came to herald the king. Look, that guy even said he's king. Then he goes in, all of a sudden, in chapters 5 and on, you know, Jesus starts talking. Chapters 5 through 7, he starts talking king talk. Starts talking about his kingdom. And you get all the stuff called the Sermon on the Mount, when he starts talking about all this, great big words, not words, thoughts, where, where Jesus is basically saying, I'm the king, and this is what it's like to live in my kingdom. Then all of a sudden, you get in chapters 8 through 10, and he starts doing kingly things. He starts healing people. He starts, I mean, he's doing all kinds of stuff left and right. He's challenging religious leaders. And then there's a flip, man. There's a flip and they come against him. Start about chapter 11. Finally, chapter 12, that gets really, really intense. This is not me cussing. Jesus basically does the equivalent in chapter 12 of saying to hell with you. I'm done with you all. There, there is nothing left for you because what they do is he says, I'm the king and you're telling everyone else you're attributing the good healings that I'm doing. All the stuff I've taught, the people I've healed, everything I've done, and the Pharisees' religious leaders say, that's not him, Satan's doing it. And Jesus is like, forget you all, go to hell. I mean, it sounds, I'm not just cussing, that's literally the equivalent where Jesus is saying, damnation on you, I'm done with you, to hell with you. And I'm not cussing, I'm just saying a literal noun, physical place. Some of you are like, oh, I can't believe he keeps saying that, stop. Some of you are breaking out in a sweat. Jesus just says, I'm done with you all. And then finally, you show up in chapter 13, and Jesus has got all this mixed crowd. 
He's gone all night. He's been healing people, crossed a lake, dealt with his mom and brothers, turning their backs on him. And it's been a long, long day for Jesus. He goes to Peter's house, tries to rest, finally walks out, he stands by the shore, he's like, oh, let me catch my breath. And then boom, all the people show up again. There's so many people show up and at the beginning of chapter 13 is that he literally can't even teach. He's got to get out and sit down in a boat because there's so many people. And I think at that moment, Jesus looks out at him and you've got a mixed bag. You've got, you know, the people who believe it and the naysayers are back again. And I don't know why the naysayers are back, but they are. And they're back in the crowd. And I don't know if it's like, let's go out and watch Jesus. It's like Israel's got talent. He's going to heal people and we can watch. It's cool. Maybe he'll feed us again today. I don't know. I don't know. But people show up. They're watching Jesus. And then Jesus is just like, all right, you want to show up and teach again? And he walks to the parable of sower. And he calls out three, quor- three quarters of the crowd and basically says, you all got hard hearts. You guys got shallow hearts. You guys got corrupt hearts. I'm here to talk to people of good hearts. And then from there, he starts laying out all these beautiful, beautiful stories like the mustard seed parable. Where he talks about how his kingdom's going to grow and expand. The parable of the yeast. All of these different stories. And then finally, he gets down to this last one. And he tells a story of the dragnet, which is kind of the capstone of chapter 13. And I promise I'm going to tie this back to James. I promise. Chapter 13, he says, Once again, the kingdom, of is like, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down in the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it on the shore, and they sat down and collected the, the, the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fire furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. I mean, think about it. That's pretty crazy. Like weeping and gnashing of teeth and fiery pit of hell is what he's basically saying. I think the disciples, it's a one word answer. Like when I get onto my son, do you understand me? Yes. I think that's about where they're at right now. Have you, have you understood all these things? Just picture them like, yes, not much more. Uh, he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law, I ah, wouldn't keep reading that. We're, we're good, we're good, we're good. So this point is this whole dragnet story that he's getting into. Think of, I, I don't know if you guys know what a dragnet is. Anybody here know what a sane is? Anybody, okay, some of us are sane before we get it. It's the long net, drag it through a pond, drag it through the river. You scoop up a lot of fish. Picture these guys on a big boat. It takes multiple men to work this net. They throw it overboard and boom, they're going to catch fish. Uh, first time Jesus meets Peter, you know, he's on the on the shore and he's not catching anything. And Jesus says, hey, think Luke five. I'm not positive. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. <laughs> they catch it. And Jesus, you know, they come to shore and Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And I'll make you a fisher of men. So we kind of know that story from commercial fishermen. So in this moment, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, man, I want you to throw your net on, on the other side of the boat. And I want you to catch all kinds of fish, all kinds of fish. Keep in mind, it was never their job to sort the fish. It's not their job. Their job is to catch the fish. That's it. And it's an important distinction. It's Jesus' job to, to separate them. He's got another parable he tells about wheat and this, this stuff called darnel that would grow up, in, grow up with the wheat. Uh, darnel is toxic. It's poisonous. It can kill you. And so one of the stories he tells in Mark Matthew 13 is like, man, I sowed wheat and then some enemy comes along in the middle of the night. He throws out this other seed and the other seed starts growing up with this wheat and they look identical. For almost a whole growth period until finally the wheat's head starts to bend over because it's so weight. But this other, this other thing, and they call it tares. It's actually called darnel. It would actually be toxic if you ate it. And Jesus says, Hey, listen, don't worry about that. Just leave it alone. He says, when the time's right, I'll separate it. So the point being, he tells the disciples, don't have anybody else come in and pull these things out. Let them be. I'm coming to James here in a second. Same thing with this story with the, with the dragnet. We're going to catch all kinds of fish. We want all kinds of fish in here. Just let them all in. And Jesus says, it's my job to separate them. See, I think sometimes in the church, and I don't mean CCO, 
we get the attitude about what kind of people should be here and what kind of people shouldn't be here. We get that attitude. And I think that even at a macro level, we do the same thing even in our own country. Here's my question for you. When James deals with this issue, we don't know if the rich man coming in is a believer or not. We don't know who he is. We just know they had a visitor. And I think it's interesting the way we treat visitors. Now, let's just start at a macro level. I'm going to sit down here for just a second so I don't get all wound up. How do we treat visitors? Oh, it's amazing how some people can come into a church or into a country and we treat them with utmost respect. And other people can come into a country and because of where they came from and how they got here, or because of their religion, or because of their skill set or their poverty level, we can treat them a whole different way. Now, I'm not asking how government should handle it. I'm asking how the church should handle it. That's my question. How does the church handle this? I don't care how Republicans handle it, and I really don't give a rip how Democrats handle it. My question is, how does the church handle it? And I think that we have been too quick to jump on a bandwagon that's political. And we've stopped to recognize that God has always called us to care for visitors. Always. I mean, let's walk through some text. I'm I'm trying to stay calm right now. Let's just walk through some text real quick. Because I'm looking at it, and I, I hear, if I hear another Christian, another Christian say another stupid comment about immigration, about Muslims, about all the stuff that's coming to our country, I'm going to lose my ever-loving mind. I'm going to lose my mind. My question for you is, what if by chance God's doing this as a gift for us as a church? We don't like to think that, do we? I mean, were any of you planning on going to Syria or Somalia and sharing your faith? (laughs) He dropped them on our doorstep and we're complaining? He's literally put them in our zip code, in our area code, and what most churches are doing is nothing but joining in the political conversation and judging it. Jumping in the political conversation saying, who are these outsiders? And I don't care if you want to call them illegal immigrants or Muslims or what do you want to call it. My point is this. If they're here, how are we as believers called to deal with visitors? I think the church in general, and I don't mean CCO, has spent a whole lot more time judging people than we are reaching them. And last time I checked, it's above most of our pay grades to solve this problem. Absolutely. 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 And there's there's nothing wrong with having good borders. Right. I've got no problem with yeah. that. So but my, my point is, it's complex. I don't, I don't know. It, it's not a simple issue. What, what's not complex? That's issue. exactly. And what we do is we spend a, you know, the point that if you're listening to the podcast is it is a complex issue. What's not complex is our response. Our response is really pretty simple. And James is going to line it out. And so I just thought, let's just kind of dance on this issue. I'm going to walk you through some text. And when we think we've got the point, 
Because I feel like, well, that's his opinion. Let's just walk through some text. Let's have some fun here. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. I'm going to go like a, a, a freaking race, race car right now. So buckle up, write down references. I'm going fast. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He's great, God, he, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. I like that partiality issue in a lot of what we're saying tonight. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Sounds like James. And loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. We can look at that and say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. That's Old Testament. We're not going down that road. All scripture is inspired and there are things. And it's not like somehow God got a marketing agent and said, ah, forget that old one. We're just in the new one. No, no, no. It all tells the story of Jesus. And at a much, much bigger level, here's my question for you. There will be a day. I'll get to that in a second. Let's move on. Exodus 23, verse 9. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you yourself are foreigners in Egypt. Verse 33 of Exodus 23, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. Zechariah 7.10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the foreigner, sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Exodus chapter 22, verse 4, you become guilty because your blood is, uh, because uh, because of the blood you have shed and become defiled by idols you made. Uh, you brought your days to a close and the end of your years has come. Therefore, I will make you an object of scorn to the nations and a laughingstock to all the countries. Why? Because of verse 7. In you, they treated the father and the mother with contempt. In you, they have oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. So I'll come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, Sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, and then we put this group. Those who defraud the laborers of their wages, which is another huge justice issue for us to talk about, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, which are both James themes, and deprive foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me. Matthew 25, verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, come to me, here, are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in, I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothing? When do we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of these least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. In James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith that has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, it's dead. In 1 John 3.17, last one, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity in them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but in actions and in truth. I think what I want to give is a scope here. That this has been our story from Exodus till now. And I'm not trying to say we can't find political ways to deal with difficulties. I'm not trying to say we've got to open up our borders wide. But what I am saying is that for most of us in this room, it is beyond our pay grade to solve this problem. We can handle it in a ballot box. That's about all we've got. But what we can do as believers is we can love the foreigner among us. 
And right now, what I feel like I see more on Twitter and more on Facebook and what I hear in day-to-day conversations is not is a whole lot of talk in a negative way and definitely not a whole lot of action. That's what we've been called to be as believers. And I just want to challenge your heart. It's easy to look at James, but at some point, can we step back and say, I'm not going to buy into this whole issue of, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a proponent for illegal immigration. I'm not saying I'm a fan, but it's here. The issue is what James is dealing with is when this person walks in, when they walk in to our country, when they walk into our church, what kind of environment do they find? Again, I don't give a rip how the Republicans want to handle it. I don't give a rip how the Democrats want to handle it. I could care less what the independents think. I do care about one thing, the church's response. Where, where is our voice? Where are we at, man? Where's our voice in this? Where's our heart in this? Again, you can't misunderstand my intent here. I'm not saying that we can't have a secure nation. I'm not saying that we can't have borders. But I'm saying we've already got millions of people here. And what if by some crazy chance that while we are so, at times, bent on getting those others out who aren't like us, what if there's a chance that God said, I really wanted to bring a transformational movement among the Muslims. And so the only way I could do it was manipulate your government to bring them to you so that you could lead them all to me. What if God orchestrated this to drop all of these people that we've got racial slur after racial slur to describe, but they scare us. They're going to shoot us. They're going to blow things up. Guess what? We've always been around people who persecuted us. And you know what? We thrive. They tried to shut you all down. They tried to shut you down in Jerusalem. And they spread you all over the known world. You know what happened in Rome? In Rome, they tried to kill you all out. And you transformed not only the inner cities of Rome by loving the poor and the oppressed, you transformed the government of Rome. And then from Rome, the gospel spread like wildfire. We have always been people that when they beat us down, they pushed us down, they they try to take everything away. That's when we are at our best. We're never at our best when we lead from fear. We're always at our best when we lead with a gospel mentality toward those in need around us. I'm frustrated by it. It's not a CCO issue, but I'm frustrated by the church's response to those in need. I don't know. It's a hobby horse for me. It's something right now that I just look at it going, I wonder in the grand scope of eternity if God's going to look at us and go, man, you guys missed it. I gave you the opportunity of a lifetime. I put them at your doorstep. I put them right in front of you. And you didn't do anything about it. Because I would imagine that most of us, myself included, We're not planning on moving to Latin America to reach people. Most of this room, myself included, we're not planning on moving to Somalia. We weren't moving to Libya. We weren't moving to Egypt. We weren't moving to the Sudan. We weren't going to any of those places in North Africa in order to to accomplish this mission. So if we weren't going to go there, what if by just chance God brought them here so we could do what we were made to do? I don't know. That may not be his plan or his purpose, but I want to have you look at it a different way. I want to tweak your mentality So that you listen to all of the talk radio, you listen to all the things going on, and you say, you know what, man? You all can have that conversation. I know what God's called me to do. He's called me to love and bear fruit and reach the oppressed. Last last point, I'll get off this and move on. You were once a foreigner, alienated from God. You were once enemies of God. And he adopted you into his family. Where in the world do we think we get the right to say that we won't love and welcome others? You were destined for hell, and God welcomed you. 
Surely, we as believers will not get wrapped up in this political debate right now. Granted, we need law and order. I don't doubt that. Granted, we need direction. Granted, we need help. Granted, we need to solve these issues. Granted, it's got all the potential in the world to overwhelm all of our systems. I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. But that's above all of our pay grades in this room. No, I don't think anybody in here that I know of, you may, and I don't realize, are getting phone calls from a federal government how to solve this problem. Maybe you are. Maybe they're, they're calling you up, asking you for input and what we need to, how we need to take care of this. But I do know this. There are people in our midst that need our help. And they've never been able to stop the church from doing that. Last question. There will become a day when you will be a foreigner again. Come a day that you're going to walk into a new city called Jerusalem that will become your home. But at some point when you walk in there, it's going to feel strangely unfamiliar to you. And I wonder how the angels of heaven, how you want them to look at you. How do you want the cherubim and seraphim to see you? How do you want the great cloud of witnesses? And we're not going to get into millennial and how people get to heaven and all that. Just give me some, some artistic liberty in explaining it right now. How do you want the great host of heaven to view you? Whether that be Moses or Abraham. How do you want them to view you? When you walk in and now you've been because of the blood of Jesus, you're truly an immigrant. You've been adopted into a family. You've been made a citizen only because of the blood of Jesus, because of nothing you can do on your own. It's the blood of Jesus that made you that way. It's the blood of Jesus that restored you, that you had nothing to offer. You grabbed a hold of a land that wasn't yours. You held on to it when you had no right to possess it. You took it because he gave it to you. You accepted it. And that mantle's been laid on you, and you're now a citizen of a kingdom and a heaven and a world that was never yours to begin with. May the angels of heaven and the great cloud of witnesses treat us the same way we treat immigrants here as a church. If they treated us the same way we treat our immigrants coming in when we get there, how would that reflect? I don't think that's going to play out. I don't. But I think this issue needs to be solved. And when I get an opportunity to talk about it here lately, I talk about it because it's driving me crazy that all of a sudden we've started allowing our faith to become a political issue. There is not a party that owns us. None of them own us. We belong to a kingdom that's bigger than the name of a party. We don't align with parties. We align with kingdom. And that kingdom is of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom we align with. So be very careful that you never attach your faith to politics. Please, please, please be careful. All right, I'm done preaching right now. I get fired up on things. Some of you heard me teach long enough. You know that was coming. I'm sweating right now. Just bothers me. Let's do this. Agree, disagree. Let's, let's have a bit of conversation because I just dropped some bombs that maybe, or do you need, maybe you need to think about it more. Maybe you need to process it. Um, or maybe it's like, I haven't thought of it that way. That's a new, new way for me to look at it. Let's have a short dialogue for a couple of minutes, and then I'm going to stop, and we're going to get back into the text. Comments? You can disagree. I'm not going to cry and go home. I'm fine. It's okay. i got thick skin. I've never looked at it that way. Okay. Yep. Into, you know, my circles are small. So what does that mean for this area? Hmm. I guess some ideas on that. Somebody else want to respond to that? My thought is just raise your kids without fear. 
Yep. The, the amount of fear that's in our country right now is just truly a lack of faith. It is. And our God is so great. Amen. And no matter who is in the White House, he can change their heart and do whatever he wants to do with, whatever, with whoever's there. So the fear that's out there that's being pushed on us. Absolutely. I mean, we just have to stand up to that fear. And we need to pray and we need to stand up just as hard for Christ as they are standing up for the fear they're trying to push. Yeah. And so, yeah, I can get passionate. Yep, yep, yep. So that's a great input in terms of the way you raise your, your kids, that's right, because you know, the way they view it. Yeah. Comment back here. Or you go down to Knoll, Missouri right now would be a great example. And, and it, it, at the same time, I, I get a little bit uh, convicted about the way, and I'm not trying to get at politics right now, but you look at what's going on with, uh, you know, Tyson's providing tremendous jobs for, for a lot of people. And I'm not, I'm not coming down on Tyson right now. Uh, but all of a sudden what you've had is an influx to when you drive down streets of Knoll 40 minutes away from us that literally you're talking probably almost getting close to as many people from North Africa in that region as there are people that grew up in that, in that city. I mean, you walk, you drive through there, if you guys drive through no lately, or you move over into Carthage and other areas around, the amount of Latinos we've got moving in. I think part of it is, is how, do we, how do we flip our heart? That we, even we, we get into conversations that we don't go along with it. When we hear people that are being you know, condescending, we say, A time out, man. That, I want to make sure you know that's not where my heart is. That my heart is with gospel, and I'm hoping that, I'm not, I'm not saying that I can solve all these issues, but what I can say is that I want to bring gospel wherever I go, and I want to make sure I'm bringing these people good news, no matter what, what tribe, tongue, or nation. Because we go to heaven, there'll be a whole lot more people there that don't speak English than do speak English. Yes, comment, question. From my head response to her, yeah. too, but um, it's the way that you also show your kids how you love other people. Hmm. Yeah. And I think you ask a question everybody thinks about. How do I do this right here? That's a great, that's a great question. And I, I'm going to take it a different angle real quick and away from this question. Let somebody bring up a different, a, if you've got a different angle, let's bring it a different angle. Okay. Bottom line, the church is not doing what it was put here for. Yeah, that's fair enough. Generally speaking, I don't want to talk about CCO. Yeah. Yeah. 
so that we can tell people about Christ. Well, even I'll, I'll use an example, and, and man, this is probably being recorded, so this is one of those moments I'm like, whew, wish I could have had that back in, you know, sometime in the future. Um, we'll, we'll look at this. I mean, let me dance on one more issue that we need to move on. There are a lot of things about, like, a Black Lives Matter movement that I don't understand. I can't wrap my head around it. But here's the part that I come back to. When I look at that, and, and I'm trying to say, man, I don't, I don't entirely get it. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I can say, I don't understand exactly what you're looking for, exactly what you want. And I can, I can look at whether it be a Colin Kaepernick taking a knee on a sideline. And I can uh, all of a sudden start getting divisive, even in my own thoughts. Even at times, I'm like, ah, that bothers me. I don't like that. And I'll, but at the end of the day, I have to step back as a believer and say, okay. I may not understand, but the first question is, how much time have I really put forth to seek to understand? That's my first point of conviction. That when I look at myself saying, okay, I'm stepping back. How many people have I truly asked to truly explain this to me in a way that I can be responsive and proactive? And honestly, very limited. Maybe two or three in my life that I've said, explain this to me. And then on top of that, I just look at it and say, at the end of the day, when it comes to the church, Michael preached on this a couple of, a couple of weeks ago. If there's a people group that's being oppressed, it's always been the church's response to provide justice, to come alongside, even though we didn't even always understand. We've always been the group of people that say, we don't understand what's going on. We may not be able to wrap our heads on around it. But if, if you're being oppressed, the church's posture has always been to say, if you feel like you're being oppressed and hurt, we want to come alongside. And I don't know that I see, by far and large, most of the church is doing that right now. And so you've got a massive vacuum that's happening because a lot of times, again, is there partiality at play? I'm going to miss his entire chapter on this issue. Yes? I just kind of echoing, I think um, a lot of churches avoid talking anything political. Yep. And the church doesn't know what to do. That's a great point, Monty. That's a great point. It, just, it, it worries me because there's so much fear. Yes. Teach us. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Bring up the subject. Don't be fearful of being political. Yeah. Because we need to know what to do. That's, these are great points I think a lot of our churches nationally struggle with. It's that moment that when, I'll be honest with you, when I watch, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to pick on Colin Kaepernick, it's an easy touch point because we've all seen it on the news. When I see him take a knee, the you know, red-blooded part of me wants to stand up and dadgummit, you don't take a knee in the flag. And the, and the believer part of me wants to walk up. I want to get down a knee and say, hey, tell me what's going on here. Help me understand what it is you're feeling. So I've got this, this dual nature inside of me that says, on your feet, salute that flag. That's what we do here. You understand? And maybe nobody else here deals with that tension. But then the believer part of me says, no, 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 fight that. Because what we've always been is the people that came alongside. And we didn't do that very well in the civil rights. We didn't do it. We failed as a church. Generally speaking, we failed in the 50s and 60s. And the church remained silent. And I'm wondering right now, is there the chance that when we remain silent, we allow all kinds of other groups to come in and all of a sudden rob us of our voice? Is this another moment? Is it a moment when the church needs to say, I don't understand everything. Will you teach me? Can I hear you? Because if you're telling me you're oppressed and you're telling me you're not receiving justice, my God is a God of justice. My God is a God who cares for the oppressed. My God is a God who comes alongside those. And I've been commanded by him to care for those who are in need. That's my, that's my birthright. 
And government can't rob me of my birthright. A movement can't rob me of my birthright. My own fear can't rob me of my birthright. What others think of me can't rob me of my birthright. I own this because I'm a child of the king. And he's called me to be a young man or a young woman or an old man or an old woman of justice. Yeah. I've had this conversation with, with people. I had some text messages just two days ago um, with, with a friend back in Dallas. And uh, it, there's all kinds of facts out there, but the reality is, in the midst of that, that's not what people want to No. Do. Because I could make the case, and you could look at statistics, and you could look at who, how many people have been killed by police officers, and you can find a lot more people yep. than black people that have been killed by police officers. That's not what gets highlighted. But the reality is, regardless of all that, regardless of it, yeah, that exists, and so, and, and, that, and that's a tough thing. I mean, that, that's a challenge. I, I struggle with that. Yeah, vision, I, I can, I can go either way with that whole thing. And I think for believers, where it lands is this: we don't draw sides right now. That in in an issue of is it blue lives matters or is it black black lives matter. Okay, we can get into this tension. We can get drawn into this debate. And what we would say is, listen, and we're not even going to get attention of saying, well, all lives matter because the divisive nature of what that brings in. We're just going to say this. We love people. And if, if it's an African-American community that feels like they're oppressed, we care. If it's police officers that fear for their lives, we care. If it's a mother that's lost a son, we care. Whether he was in the line of duty or at the wrong end, be it of his own, whatever it is, we care. And I think the deeper thing is we are people of love and we will not allow politics or talk radio or conversations or sound bites on TV to draw us in. We're not here to judge the case. None of us in here are attorneys to try it in court. None of us in here are judges that are going to have to weigh it. And probably none of us are going to be sitting on a jury to decide it. But what we can do is this. We can love radically, unconditionally, regardless. And just say, man, I don't understand everything that happened. But my heart goes out to that police officer and his family for what they're going through. And I don't understand that happened, but my heart goes out to the woman in the video that drops the F-bomb every two or three words over her husband. My heart goes out for her because she's broken right now. And as a believer, that's what I'm drawn to do. Don't, don't try to let people push you one way or the other. You stand firmly in where Jesus would stand. And he would find an amazing way to love both. Does that make sense? Let's move on. I'm in camp. Any other comments? Suggestions? I did not plan on going that long, which means we're almost out of time. Let's move through a couple more things here. Um, so James gets into verse 1. <laughs> he says, My brothers and sisters and our glorious Lord Jesus Christ don't show favoritism. Uh, one of the things they say about Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 16, is it says, uh, they, they make this comment. Um, the disciples said to him, he said, Teacher, uh, we know that you're a man of integrity that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And he says this, you are not swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. I love that. And, and I wish that we could get to that point to where we don't just immediately judge people by what they look like, by how much money we think they've got, by the car they drive. And we do that so much. And, and for some of us, we live in such fear. We pull up to a gas station and if we see somebody in a car that we just think looks rough, all of a sudden our defenses are up. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be mindful. I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware of our surroundings. But I'm saying how can we get to the point that our first impulse is, our first, uh, impulse is prayer and love? 
and say, man, I may be fearful to talk to you. I don't know why, but there's nothing that keeps me from just absolutely praying over you and for God to do amazing things in your life. How do you even move from that in confidence that God will protect you and, and he'll do great things? And I, again, you got to be wise in all this because I know when I got a 16-year-old daughter, I'm going to have her make really wise decisions in terms of how she inter- integrates with others. Okay, I understand that. But I'm talking to the adult class right near. Uh, he goes on in, in chapter 10, verse 34, the book of Acts. Acts 10, 34, Peter began to speak and he says, I now realize... Uh, how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Romans chapter 2 verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9, and masters treat your slaves the same way. Don't threaten them since you know that he is both their master and yours in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Colossians 3.25, anyone who does wrong will pay their wrongs. There is no favoritism. We've already read Acts 10.34. I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. I think we get the, the tendency that if we live with a heart that's full of prejudice and bias, there's a part of us we need to realize if that's not from God, then who it's from. Deal with that. If you get a heart that deals with prejudice and bias, let me ask you very simply, after I've read those scriptures, is that from God? Yes or no? Okay, then who's it from? Yeah, identify it. You gotta identify it, man. You gotta see this is it. Whew, whoa. And at that moment, nothing should be more real in your life and my life than repentance. And saying, that is not of the Father. This this attitude of bias and prejudice, whether it be toward race or religion, that is not from God. How do I get to the point that I live a life of repentance? That's not from Him. And again, if it's not from Him, and that's if I constantly ask myself. Okay, I'm feeling this right now about what I'm seeing on TV or what I'm hearing right now, and I find myself getting agitated. I find myself getting drawn into the conversation. I find myself getting judgmental about what happened. I find myself wanting to cast a verdict. Wait, 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 wait. That's not my role. Not my role. Not my job. You know, and I'm not trying to be... Ah, I'm going to use illustration. Move on. Uh, just stop. Um, the cool thing about gold rings is sometimes they weren't even always rich. It's interesting, they would, they could even, even like today, they could rent that. So they didn't even know that these people were, were, were wealthy, but I think, I think that's fascinating. Um, I'm gonna skip through some stuff here, cause we camped out. Um, I, I think it's always important for us to keep the same attitude of Jesus that he shows in Matthew 10, verse 45. I told you, I'm dumping scripture like crazy. He said, if the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and gave his life as a ransom for, let me know the next word, many. And one thing we know from the book of Revelation is there will be all kinds of people up there. People of every tribe, every tongue, every language. And they will not all be, you know, white and Caucasian, you know, middle class. They just won't be. And so the sooner that we get comfortable with other types of people, I think the more we're going to enjoy heaven. If we're not comfortable with other races, we're not comfortable with other languages, we're not comfortable with people that people look different than us, <laughs> you're not going to like heaven. Because uh, it's going to be full of people who don't look and talk like you. And so the sooner you can go, I want to see the kaleidoscope that is God's kingdom. You know, and I, I hear people say sometimes, I got to watch this. Please hear my heart. I hear people say, well, man, I don't see black. I don't see this. And I do because my God made it. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. I was sitting, <laughs> we're even, and please, ladies, hear my heart because I mean this in, in all the right ways. I was sitting one day and, and uh, we, we had an issue that was going on. And, uh, and we had uh, uh, a, a woman that we're working with. She's awesome. And uh, some of the comment, they go, you know, when I see you, I don't see, see a woman. Uh, you know, I just, I just see, you know, someone just like, just like one of us. And I was like, well, I, I don't see that at all. I absolutely see her as a woman, completely. 
And because of that, she's fantastic. She's awesome. And I want every part of who she is as a female. And she's absolutely nothing like me. And that what's, that's what makes us better. And they're like, what? I was like, oh, yeah. I, I completely see her as a female and a really sharp leader in an organization. I'm grateful for that. Like, oh, oh, okay. I think part of it is I'm not asking you to completely remove your ability to see the differences. Learn to find wrapped up in that is the glory of God. Wrapped up in that is, is, is beauty. Because when I see some of the beauty that comes from an African culture and the way they care for family, it's gorgeous. When I see some of the stuff in a Latino culture and their passion, it's gorgeous. When I see the order and the systems and the creativity that come from North American culture or Japanese culture, it's gorgeous. It's amazing. And I think what I'm, what I'm saying in all of this is that learn to see the kaleidoscope of God's kingdom as a beautiful thing. And don't, don't say, well, I just see them just like me. I don't know. I don't know that's even healthy. I think it's okay to say, you know what, there may not be Jew nor Greek, we're all one in Christ Jesus, but we don't have to surrender our, our God-given, you know, way he's made us and the way he's wired us. I think that's a beautiful thing we're getting to the kingdom as long as we have a Christ-like mindset. Man, I'm dropping just, I feel like I'm just flying over, just dropping bomb after bomb today. You're like, he can't go away anymore. Um, I think there's a, a huge danger when we dishonor the poor. Uh, Paul gets into that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. He says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? So basically, they're coming to communion, and they're having this communion time, and the rich people are just kind of eating high on the hog, and the poor people are getting left out. And Paul just goes, well, don't you have homes to eat in? Or you despise the church by humiliating, humiliating those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And Paul's saying that, man, this is an issue that the church is dealing with all over. So as much as we may deal with it, they dealt with it too. It's been a, a constant issue. Uh, second, first Peter chapter two, verse, verse 17. So it's just, eh, I'm not going to get into that one. I got all time for that. Um, there's another verse we're going to get into, verse six. How much time I got? I got three minutes. Uh, he says, but you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And I think at, at some level, we can get enamored with people of wealth in our culture. And this is not going to, I'm not going down the Occupy Wall Street angle right now. I promise you that. But I think there is this part of us when you realize it. And I'm not just, I'm not just down on the rich because all that does is reverse the condemnation to another, another people group. That does us no good. But I would say you get to step back and realize that usually half the people that you're enamored with and that we look up to, whether it be an actor that walks in here, a famous athlete, it's, it's not like they truly care about you. I mean, I'll watch at times people will suck up to somebody that they think is got power or some of them got influence and they will just, you know, brown nose them, suck up to them. That's a really bad expression to use, my bad. Uh, they were <laughs> really inappropriate. They will do all kinds of things to praise this individual. I realized when I said it, it's like a, never mind, I shouldn't even, I shouldn't even point it out. I should just let it roll by and not even stop. Uh, they will look up to these people and adore them. And honestly, is it really like they even give a rip? And that's what he's saying in the church. Like, you're falling down over your feet trying to pay attention to these rich people that are showing up, and they're the ones that are dragging the court and hurting you. And you see this play out. Like in, uh, in uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 9, Jesus says, you've got to be on your guard. You're going to be handled over the local councils. You're going to be flogged in the synagogue. Acts 4.1, you find these the priests and the captain of the temple. They're the ones that take in and beat. Uh, they seize Peter and John in verse 3 of Acts 4. Uh, and... Uh, and they threw him in jail. Acts 13, it's another time where they persecute. It's all the religious leaders that persecute. Acts 16, it's another time where there's another point of persecution. And I think what he's saying is half the time the people you're enamored with and your people you're nervous about are the ones that are going to end up hurting you anyway. And he says, yeah, there's a poor over here that just give anything for you just to pay attention to them. 
Uh, I got really convicted once. My son, when he was little, I'd given him money to, uh, <sighs> give him money. We're going on a trip together, a CIY trip. And, uh, you know, buy a snack. I went in there, kept pushing him to buy a snack. Come on, we're going to get in the car, hurry up. And my son's not always the fastest decision maker. Drives me crazy, crazy. I go nuts. I'm like, come on, buddy. He's like, nah. and he couldn't decide. I was like, buddy, I'm going I'm to count to 10 right now. If you can't make a decision, we're getting up and loading up. And finally he goes, let's just go. And so I was like, all right, you got your money in your hand. That's it. I'm like, I'm a tough dad right now. Boy, I'm going to teach this little boy. You're going to learn a lesson. I'm like, get your butt out in the car. We're leaving. Let's go. We got, you know, four more hours of drive. Let's get, get out of here. So we go out there, we get in the car, and he pulls the money out of his pocket, and he goes, I'll be right back. I'm like, he's got to be like maybe eight at this point. Gets out. I'm like, what do you, like, get my seatbelt back, try to get the car and park. I'm like, what do you mean you'll be right back? And he jumps out of the car. He takes off walking. And all of a sudden, I watch him walk all the way up to this quick trip in Springfield, Missouri. Four more hours till we get to St. Louis, whatever it is, three and a half hours. And he walks up, takes his $10 bill that I give him for snacks. And he walks in that moment and he hands it to a guy that's just sitting there. And I realize in that moment, how many opportunities do we overlook? And we can say they're going to spend it on drugs, or they're going to use it for this, or they're going to do bad things with it. But I guess, what, what does reckless love look like in our lives? And have we lost the ability to do that? Have we become so skeptical and cynical about people and humanity that we've lost the ability to just love recklessly? We're always going to say, I don't want you to take advantage of. Why? I understand boundaries in, in interpersonal relationships. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those in need. How do we get to the point that if we're going to err on one side or the other, I know which side I err on and I don't like it. I err too far over here and making sure I'm building my own personal kingdom, taking care of mine, making sure I've got all of our needs met. And I wish I spent a little more time with a reckless love, willing to be taken advantage of. Some of you guys are going to come up after this going, can I borrow 10 bucks? The answer is yes. Um, let's wrap this thing up. I did not do justice to covering all this text. Um, for Christians, I think sometimes one last thing I want to hit on. I think at times we've talked a lot about whether it be the poor, whether it be a different race. But let's talk about one other area of impartiality that we don't talk about a lot. Sometimes it's easier for us to show uh, love and goodwill and favor toward people that are really, really different. Sometimes within the church, uh, the one that I see even more is a way that we handle people that get involved in sin. Um, that Sometimes um, th- there is a point in church discipline that we can get into in 1 Corinthians where it's appropriate to just say, we have, and that, but that's the elder's job. They'll take care of that. But I think sometimes as believers, we can be really quick to write off people uh, who, who have made major mistakes. We write off people who have caught themselves doing something or involved in something that they shouldn't be involved in. And, uh, and that's the other one that, that grieves me in terms of partiality and favoritism, that, that all of a sudden if somebody's got a season in their life where whether it be an addiction or a bad decision or, or something they've done, I think sometimes the church has not always been a welcoming place for those that are broken and those that have blown it. And, and I would say that as we, as we address this issue in our midst of favoritism and partiality, how do we also become a healing place 
to say, we're going to welcome you if you're from another country. We're going to welcome you if your religion is different. We're going to welcome you if your skin's a different color. We're going to welcome you if you speak another language. We're also going to welcome you if you've been a prisoner of war. And I don't mean Iraq or, or Vietnam. In this moment, I mean of an enemy. And that if you've been taken hostage by sin, as a church, we're not going to turn our back on you. We're not going to reject you. That in the same way that Christ continually redeems me of my sin, that I'm going to be a place here, and I want my heart and my home and my church to be a place that says to a young girl that's pregnant, to uh, a family that's going through a difficulty in their marriage, somebody that's struggling with addiction, whatever that is. I'm picking bombshell right now issues. I don't know anything in particular. I'm just hitting big issues. How do we constantly say we don't judge people by their sin right off the bat? Now, as believers within the church, we can judge sin. That is appropriate. But we provide a place where we restore people, where we bear one another's burdens. And bearing the burden of clothes and water and even shelter, sometimes for us, for some of us, for me, calling me out, can sometimes be easier. It's easier for me to give you 20 bucks to put gas in your tank than it is sometimes to deal with the mess you've created in your life. I'm dealing with my own family right now. Dealing with my own family. Just be perfectly honest. And, And sometimes my patience for the poor is much greater than my patience for my family that has an addiction. And I just step back and at some level I wonder, how does this text relate to that? How does this text relate to that as well? Okay, so there you go. Please show up again next week. It won't be like this again. I promise you, it's not like this every time. Hopefully, if nothing else, you can go, well, at least it was interesting. At least it fired us up a bit. At least we're getting some fun conversation on the way home. Uh, But honestly... I would tell you that listening to me teach in this moment is a lot like eating fish. you got to eat the meat and spit out the bones. And at some point, you got to let the Holy Spirit discern in your own heart what's truth and what you agree with and what you don't. Sort that between you and Jesus. I'm not trying to say that every word I say is inerrant or that I'm right on all these issues. But I do like to stir things up sometimes, and i got a text where I can do that tonight. So, see you next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.